Well, go ahead and get your Bible out, open to the prophet Isaiah, and we are picking up in chapter 10, verse 5, where we have left off. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning. Uh, Maybe you have noticed the uh, stained glass windows of this building possibly, right? Because uh, they're huge. Uh, you've probably come in, you've probably noticed them. If uh, you didn't grow up here, if you, whenever you first came to this, this church building, maybe that's one of the first things that you actually noticed were the stained glass windows. But have you ever gotten up really, really close to a piece of that stained glass window? I mean, really close, within like inches of that stained glass Because if you get really, really close to any of these windows that we have in this room, what you will notice in one small little section of the glass is that it looks kind of ugly, kind of bad, kind of distorted. It's it's not clear as to even how or why the artist would have put these things together the way that they did. Because if you look at the glass, you'll see the imperfections. You'll see bubbles, you'll see streaks, you'll see... Even the colors don't even kind of match to other colors, but somehow, some way, these things go together. And if if you're completely ignorant of the fact that this piece of glass would go in with other pieces of glass to make a beautiful window, you would think this piece of glass is really worthless. It, It has no purpose. It has no reason for its existence. And I think this is the case with all stained glass windows. If we don't back away from them, we can't really see the beauty. We can't really understand what what is really here, and this is the complexity of what we will be dealing with today. What we will see today in our text is that there is a beautiful thing that is created for us in front of us, but often we are too close and we do not see it. And I think this is one of the great downfalls of being a human. And we are so close to things that we can't really see the big picture. We can't see the window because of the glass. And maybe you've heard another, another analogy of that, right? You can't see the forest because of what? The trees. Okay, well, we're on the same page. Uh, God's going to talk about some trees in this text as well, and it doesn't go well for the trees. So um, our perception of a current event or maybe a personal circumstance has brought out only maybe the ugliest view that you've had of the glass, You don't really see the beauty of the window because of how close you are to it or the the narrow vision in which maybe you've had about it. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to help us gain a right perspective about the beauty of God and the beauty of His work and what He is accomplishing. Accomplishing. So that's that's a, a, a word that points to the future, right? something that's in process, and something that's working towards something. He is accomplishing something. We'll see God baffle our logic, but we will come away with an understanding that God always does what is right. Now, there's three distinct sections of this chapter that we're going to look at, excluding the first uh, four verses that I think go neatly with chapter 9. And we're going to see the first section here in verses 5 through 11. 5 through 11, and what we will see is Assyria is God's rod of judgment. Look at verse 5 with me. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, 
to tread them down like the mire of the streets, but he does not so intend in his heart, does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karagamesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? <clears throat> As my hand has reached uh, to the kingdoms of the idols, uh, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? If you go back to verses 5 and 6, it starts with this phrase, the rod of my anger. The rod of my anger is what? It is against a godless nation I send him. Against a godless nation I send him. So the, the context here is about Assyria, and God is going to use Assyria in his wrath against Israel, God's people. God's going to send an evil nation at that as his wrath upon his people, his people that have rejected him. Now this teaches us that God is the ruler over every nation, including the most wicked of nations and the most powerful of nations. God has historically used, as we've seen even long before Isaiah, God has used Egypt, He's used Assyria, and He will use Babylon in the future to bring judgment upon Israel. But each of these nations are merely a tool in the Master's hand. And later on in Isaiah, he says in chapter 40, in verses 22 and 23, he says this about who God is. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is the God who Israel once worshipped, but now, now what does Israel do with this God? They, they have abandoned Him, they have forsaken Him, and what will happen because of their forsaking, because of their abandonment, because of their idolatry in worshipping other gods, what will happen? God will bring His wrath upon them. In verse 6, it says that they have become godless. He calls them a godless nation. Now, what does this mean to be godless? As I said last week, Jeroboam, Jeroboam being the first king of Israel after the split, the, the divided kingdom that happened after Solomon's death, uh, Jeroboam being that first king, he led one right after another uh, into a series of bad kings, bad prophets, and led the nation further and further into idolatry, into a further distance from God. They worshipped other gods during this time. Jeroboam even commanded this to happen during this time. So what does it mean that they were godless since there were other gods that they were actually worshiping? Well, what does it mean to be godless? Well, if you don't worship the one true God, you are godless. You don't worship the true God, and because of that, you do not realize that there is no other God. You've lost perspective. You've lost a right vision of who God is and what other things are. God has proved this point over and over again through history and, 
And one of the clearest demonstrations of this, of this fact that there are no other gods is when we think back to the time of his people being freed from Egypt. What happens during that time? Well, God sends this man Moses into the land, and what does Moses do? He tells Pharaoh, commands Pharaoh to let his people go, let God's people go, and then ten plagues fall upon the nation of Egypt, right? And each of those nations are a slap in the face of these proposed or claimed deities or gods, proving that God is in control over these claimed deities. Each one, he's just slapping them down one right after another, proving that there are no other gods. There is only one. So, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over Israel, and he is sovereign over their destruction. But, what this is also teaching us is that he is sovereign over the destroyer, Assyria. So it's not just his people that he's over, but he's also over the one that brings destruction. The rod that is in his hand, he is over them as well. He's going to use this wicked nation as a weapon of destruction against Israel. And what is an application for us today about this truth? Well, there is not a nation on this planet who is not under the control of the Lord, whether that be Russia or China or America or Madagascar. It doesn't matter. Every nation is doing the bidding of God, whether they realize it or not. Whether they comprehend what they are doing as fulfilling the plan of God, God is in control. He always is. God is strengthening nations, and He is destroying nations as He sees fit. Assyria. They had no idea that they were being used by God. They believed that what they were doing was of their own authority or their own autonomy. No, we, we've decided to do this. We are going to accomplish this. Which really brings us to the next section of this passage. Look at verse 12 through 19. And then we'll jump ahead to 24 through 34. And we'll see that God promises punishment to Assyria. Look at verse 12. And the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion. And on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boasting look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, God of hosts, will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning <clears throat> will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become, as, uh, become a, flame, a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn devour his thorns and briars in one day the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land. The Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man 
waste away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Then jump to verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my, while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it, as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah troubles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Uh, give attention, O Laisha. O poor Aethoth. Uh, Admonia is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibeon flee for safety this very day. He will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at, at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows uh, with uh, terrifying power. The great in height will be hewed down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God punishes Assyria. He promises punishment to Assyria. If you go back to verse 12, we're told that Assyria does what God wants, but then after they do what God wants, He's going to judge them. Is this fair? Is this right? God judges them for doing the thing in which He ordained them to do. If the Assyrian Empire is but an axe or a saw, as verse 15 says, how is the axe, how is the saw culpable? How is the instrument responsible for what it does? Can the tool be held accountable? His judgment against Assyria was not for the thing that they did, but the motives of their heart when they did it. They have no zeal for God. Therefore, what does God do? He judges them because of the motives of their hearts. If you look back at verse 7, in the first section that we looked at, it says, but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. What is in the heart of the people of Assyria, the king of Assyria, the heart of this nation is to destroy. It is not to honor God. It is not to fear God. It is destruction. And this is the key verse that really helps us understand what is happening here and why is Assyria judged? It is a matter of their heart's intentions. And who is the Lord? The Lord is the only one who judges not only actions and deeds, but He judges what? The heart. The intentions of the heart. John writes in Revelation 2, verse 23, he says, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The Lord, the Lord is the only one who really knows what is in the mind or in the heart of people. 
people themselves don't even know why they do certain things. If you're married, have been married, if you have children, you know this to be true about others. But rarely do you see this about yourself, do you? As I counsel with people, I think this is self-evident. I, I ask a series of questions uh, about the situation, about what's going on, and, and the series of questions leads to the underlying issues that are there, but they've never really thought about their motivations in the midst of all those things. They've never really processed that until they actually say it out loud. Oh, oh, it's me. Yeah, usually is. It usually is us. We talk about God being omniscient, Right? All-knowing. He knows all things. We, we talk about that. We proclaim that. But we don't like to think too hard about this fact because it leads to a terrifying reality that God knows the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts. I mean, spend some time today thinking about the omniscience of God. Let me give you a picture of this. If we were able to download your thought life over this last week, that's terrifying just to think of that, right? And then to project it up on the screen, how many people would you invite to witness your thought life this last week? Would you hope that nobody would show up? Would you hope that nobody would ever view those things? Would you even show up yourself to look at your own thoughts this last week? I think this is, this is terrifying in my mind anyways. Now think about this. All those people that you hope would not show up, those people are just as wicked selfish, arrogant, wretched as you. The Lord, on the other hand, the Lord is holy, completely righteous. And what does He know? Every one of those thoughts. He knows the ones that you've tried to forget and those that you have forgotten. He knows all of them. I want you to think on this. How extremely merciful is the Lord? How merciful is our God that He knows every detail of your thought and of your heart and He hasn't crushed you yet? How amazing is our God? How merciful is He? He knows you better than you know yourself or anyone could know you. In this passage, it teaches us that God knows the motives of the heart and He uses those motives for what? His purposes, even if those intentions, even if those motives are evil at the core. Assyria had evil motives, but God uses those evil motives to, to bring about a righteous outcome, the outcome that he desired, that he wanted. God has made the decree that Assyria was going to come to destroy Israel, but then he also makes another decree that Assyria is going to be destroyed and this is going to be completed after they have fulfilled God's purpose. Now, this leads us to the biblical paradox that is here and really all over the Bible of the Lord's sovereignty and human responsibility. How can God's eternal plans and decrees be carried out to the letter while at the same time that God holds people accountable for their intentions and their actions? How does this work? Well, let, let's use a very old reference point as a, a place of help for us. In the London Baptist Confession of 1689, 
under chapter 3, it talks about God's decrees and gives explanation to God's decrees. And it says this in the first paragraph. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in the directing all, in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. The confession goes on in the next paragraph and says this, God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, his decree of anything is not based on foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. What is the basis that these Baptists have from 333 years ago? What is the basis for their reasoning, for their logic, for their stance, for their confession of these things? Well, if you go and read the London Baptist Confession of Faith under each of those, of those really sections, you'll find those paragraphs, you'll find a listing of scriptures. And this is where they go. They go to the scriptures to explain why they think these things. And the first of these that they list is out of Isaiah 46. I want you to turn there. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. The first reference point that they give. It's on page 568 of that hardback Bible, if you're using that. Isaiah 46, verse 8 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, talking about Assyria here, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God has declared the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. This is not only true about what is going to happen to Assyria, to Israel, to Judah, but it's also true of every nation and every person of that nation. In verse 10, it says that these things will stand because of what? His purposes. Why will this happen? Because this is His purpose. His purpose. God does nothing Based upon chances or probabilities, God does not have some magic eight ball up in heaven. He's shaking and going, oh, well, let's see what happens this time. He's not rolling dice. He's not spinning the roulette wheel. No. It's upon his perfect purposes. Now, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 1.11, which is another reference point that the London Baptist Confession goes to. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. The question becomes, what does all things mean? 
What does it mean by all things? Well, the Scripture helps us here, and it tells us this. It tells us that it's the fall of sparrows in Matthew 10, 29. It's the rolling of dice in Proverbs 16, 33. It is the slaughter of his people in Psalm 44, 11. The decisions of kings in Proverbs 21, 1. The failing of sight in Exodus 4, 11. The sickness of children in 2 Samuel 12, 15. The loss and gain of money in 1 Samuel 2, 7. The suffering of saints in 1 Peter 4, 19. The completion of travel plans in James 4, 15. The persecution of Christians in Hebrews 12, 4 through 7. The repentance of souls in 2 Timothy 2, 25. The gift of faith in Philippians 1, 29. The pursuit of holiness in Philippians 3, 12 and 13. The growth of believers in Hebrews 6, 3. And the giving of life and the taking in death. 1 Samuel 2, 6. All things are working towards the completion of God's eternal purposes. All things. His will is going to be accomplished, and there is nothing that will stand in His way or take Him off track or by surprise. All things are working according to the counsel of His will. Another reference point that they give is Numbers 23, verse 19, where it says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. He has said, and he will not do, uh, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? When God decrees something, there's a certainty to it. Why? Because of his immutable nature, his unchanging nature. His plans don't change because his plans have always been perfect. And if his plans weren't perfect from the beginning, then he's not a very perfect God, is he? There's a fundamental problem about who he is if his plans are imperfect. If he has had to change his mind or his plans to accommodate people's behaviors or intentions, he's not a very good God. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah and see what Isaiah has to say about this issue, this, this paradox that we see in Scripture, these seemingly two contradictory things of God's sovereignty over all things and Assyria's responsibility. How do these things go together? Isaiah helps us here in chapter 37, verses 28 and 29. Isaiah uses a picture of a horse and its rider. And he uses this to depict the mystery of God's sovereignty and the human responsibility. In that passage, Assyria is the horse, and the Lord is the rider of the horse. The horse is restless and raging, out of control of sorts, but the Lord gives direction and dominion over it. It says he has his bit in its mouth, turns it how he wants it. The Assyrians give thought and, and even action to their desires of world domination, but it is ultimately the Lord who sits upon the beast. It is He who gives direction to this animal to only do as much as He will allow it to do for His holy purposes. Assyria does not write history, but who does? God alone. He is the one who writes all history. In our Sunday morning scripture readings, we've been reading through the book of Genesis. We are in the middle, like smack dab in the middle of Joseph's story. 
where Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and then through a series of events now, as we just read this morning, that he is now second in command of all Egypt. We haven't got there yet, but in chapter 50, verse 20, we are told this of what Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the right viewpoint that we should have when we think about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Even though people have evil intentions and evil actions against us, as they did against Joseph, God always is working. And he is always working for what? His ultimate glory. He is working for his decrees and his purposes, his will. And what does the Lord not have control over? What, what in Joseph's life is he seen as, well, you didn't have control over that thing, God. Joseph is attributing God's sovereignty over all things, but responsibility to those that acted evil against him. Is there anything that he is not sovereign over? I mean, can you think of anything that God does not have control over? Is not all under the eternal decrees of God? Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers, their decisions, the decisions of others, people that he thought were even his friends in prison and they just forgot about him. But every bit of that suffering, every bit of the circumstance of which he was facing, it all had purpose. It all had a divine purpose that was being fulfilled. Did Joseph see it in the moment? No. It was when he backed away, when he saw the full frame of the window that he saw that is the work of God. Man's intentions always give way to God's intentions. Well, let's talk about Assyria's motivations. What was Assyria's intentions? There's three things I think we, we see here and we know about Assyria. Three things that relate to us even, control, greed, and self-worship. Control, greed, and self-worship. These are no different intentions that the average person has. That maybe many of us in this room have. And I won't ask you to raise your hands this morning if you're a controlling person. that You wouldn't like that. You'd feel out of control. Um, but control, it, it, re- it reveals itself in different ways. One of the ways it reveals itself is in micromanagement. Or in intimidation, or manipulation, or lying. There's several other ways in which people do this. In order to maintain control or gain control, they act in these kinds of ways. Greed. Greed reveals itself in in us saying that, well, I'm just tight with my money. Or we're willing to do whatever it takes, even at the expense of others. And greed also involves a complete lack of empathy for other people and what's happening in their life. And then self-worship is another intention of Assyria and another intention that we have. Self-worship, it can be very subtle. Sometimes I think it's very obvious as whether somebody is a a self-worshipper, especially on Instagram or other social media platforms. I think this shows itself pretty easily. Whether it's nothing but self-promotion, you know, selfies or humble bragging, um, you know, constant posts about the drama in their life, which, which all of these things that I think are easily just pointed to as, well, this is just self-worship. It's just attention grabbing and seeking that is happening here. 
But I want to talk a little bit more into the subtle self-worship and where it shows itself. One author calls, um, he, he lists out six commandments of self-worship, and I think these are quite helpful for us as we think about whether we are committing this act of idolatry. He lists these six things. Number one, that your mind is the source and standard of truth. Your mind is the source. So no matter what, trust yourself. Do we hear that in our culture? Do we hear that all the time? Trust yourself. That first feeling you have, that's the right one. Trust, trust that instinct. Which if you've ever met those people, it's like, wow, you shouldn't do that. A second thing he lists, the second commandment, your emotions are authoritative. So never question or let other people question your feelings. Well, I just feel, I just have this, this, this emotion about, don't question that. Don't let other people question that. Your emotions are authoritative. They set the tone. They set the standard. A third thing he lists is that you are sovereign. You are sovereign. So Flex your omnipotence, bend the universe toward your will, your direction, your dreams, your desires. You are sovereign. You know better. Leads to the fourth thing, which is very similar to the third. You are supreme. You're supreme. So always, always act according to your chief end, to your glory in all things. You strive to accomplish what makes you the happiest. You are supreme. Hashtag YOLO, right? YOLO, you know what that means? You only live once. You only live once. That's what YOLO means. So there, there's a car, I won't mention what kind of car it is, that drives around town with this, this on their, their plate. It says YOLO. And I just think every time I see it, you need Jesus. Because if you don't have Christ, you only live once. Right? But if you have Christ, you live twice. You have eternal life. So somebody that thinks themselves supreme will live their life as if this is the only life. It's my best life now. i got to do everything I can to act to my chief end, to my glory, to my fame, because you only live once. Number five, you're the summum bonum, which is Latin, and that means the standard of goodness. You are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone else oppress you in any, any sort of antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. No, you're the standard of goodness. What you decide to do with your life, that's good. It's right. You're a good person, especially compared to these other people. This leads to the sixth thing. You are the creator. You are the creator. So use the limitless creativity that you have to craft your identity, your purpose. You do your thing. You create your own universe. You create your own identity. Self-worship. It can be subtle. And these six things are the root causes of what I believe probably are most hot-button social movements. If you listen carefully to what is being said or what is posted all over their websites, what you will find are one of these six, if not all six of these things promoted. God is going to judge Assyria 
because this is how they thought. This is what motivated them. Self-worship, greed, control. They were not motivated to honor God or worship the, the one true God because it's, it's just not in them to do so. It's just outright idolatry, what they had in mind. And because of their outright idolatry, God is going to destroy them, and this has been decreed. God will bring judgment upon all those who worship idols, including those who submit to self-worship, which could include even you this morning. In verses 13 and 14 of this passage, we see the, the king of Assyria, and he claims autonomy. He claims autonomy about this specific situation. And he says things like, I have done it. I have understanding. I remove the boundaries. The king believes that he is acting alone to accomplish these things. But what is the reality of chapter 10? What is God pointing out in chapter 10? That there is no one who is autonomous except for one. And who is that one? God alone. There's only one completely free agent. And that is God Maybe you remember the story in the book of Daniel about King Nebuchadnezzar, or as I like to call him, King Nebi. It's just easier. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it leads up to this story where he's standing on, on the wall of Babylon. He's looking out over the city, and this is what he says in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And if you know that text, the very next verse, the very next verse says, while the words were still in his mouth, what did God do? He struck him. He struck him down and he acted like a beast for seven years. Why? Because the king said, it's me. I did it. Look what I accomplished. He ignored he blasphemed God in thinking that he was the creator. He was the supreme. He was the sovereign. But God proves in this, just the sentence that he allows to come out of this man's mouth. He, he then strikes him and proves that it is only because the Lord has allowed this to be. No one, no thing is autonomous. Everything and everyone is dependent upon the Lord to sustain it. The Lord makes his point. I think even clearer in verse 15, if you look at verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. How ridiculous is, is the situation here that God's describing about Assyria? Thinking, acting, believing that they had anything to do with their success excluding God. How ridiculous is this? This nation is at the disposal of the Lord, and so are you. So are we. So let's not think ourselves detached from God's authority or, or think that we have some sort of power in and of ourselves. This is not true. Any positive outcome is because of God, and any judgment that you might incur is because of your wicked heart. Your wicked motives. In verse 19, there's this theme here about, again, the trees that I mentioned. This also picks up in 33 and 34, where God talks about cutting down Assyria 
like an army of lumberjacks would a forest. These trees, they might seem sturdy, they might seem mighty, they might seem to be, you know, just this, this fortress that is there, but what does God say? They will be cut down with little effort, and God's actions against them will be so devastating that, that he says in verse 19 that a child will be able to write them down. A child will be able to count them. And this is a pretty embarrassing decree from God against this superpower, the superpower of the world. Like, who, who would say such a thing against a superpower? Who would provoke them like this? Well, in chapter 37, which we've already referred to in our message this morning, Isaiah records that there's 185,000 185,000 Assyrians that are killed in one night by the Lord's angel. So whenever verse 19 is written, promised in verse 33 and 34, promised that it will, it will be as if these trees didn't even exist. They will be cut down so quickly. There's our reference point. What does God do in one night? He destroys them that quick. Now you might think that you're secure, you're untouchable, but God merely has to give a word and you're ruined. God's punishment of Assyria, it is just and perfectly righteous, and any punishment to anyone will be the same. It will be just, and it will be perfectly righteous. Like I said last week, in reference to God's wrath, God's wrath leads us toward something. You remember what it was? God's wrath leads us toward His astounding grace. And this is what we find in the next verses that we skipped over, verses 20 through 23. Look back at those. Verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. There's a rem the remnant that is there, a remnant that will return to the land, that will be restored. This remnant is referring to Israel, again setting the tone for Judah in verses 20, 21, 22. The word remnant is repeated. It's repeated for emphasis, as most words are in the Word of God. Emphasis about God's decree and, and how is the remnant secured because God decreed it. Why will there be a remnant because God has chosen to make one? This remnant people are chosen by God's grace. Now Paul picks up on this in Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. He says this, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What Paul is getting at, what I think 20 through 23 is getting at in Isaiah 10, is that it is not by bloodlines, it is not by denominations or denominational alliances or political allegiances or our good works that we are saved. Only those who live by faith and repentance will be saved. And the remnant people of God will be repentant and they will live by faith. This is what God is decreeing in 20 through 23. It's not by the will of man 
or by chance, but by the declaration of God and His grace that there will be a remnant people. God is going to preserve a remnant. Now at this point with Isaiah, he doesn't know how, he doesn't know when, he doesn't know what way this is going to take place, but, but, because he said it, he can trust it. Because God has declared it, He has decreed it, it will be done. It may not be clear from our perspective, it may not be clear because we're so close, we're such in the middle of a circumstance or, or a situation, but we can trust the Lord. We can trust His promises. He is a trustworthy God. Now these Old Testament themes that we're referring to, that we're talking about here in Isaiah, they are real for us today. God's Word it's timeless. It is relevant. We see nations today, right? Raging in war. We see people turning away from, from God to self-worship, to idolatry. What we should also see in the midst of all these things is that God's sovereign plan is unfolding every single day. Every day it is working. Every day it is moving forward. Nothing is happening in this world that He has not ordained. Everything. Everything is under His control. Everything has been worked out down to the finest detail in God's mind. Now you've heard the saying, right? The devil's in the details. Have you heard that before? Maybe it's just people I hang out with. Um, well, I say baloney to that, right? I know that's a swear word, right? Um, baloney's disgusting. Um, because, <laughs> because God is in the details. Is the devil in the details? No. He doesn't even know what the fine print is. He, he can't see it. He can't predict it. He can't write it. God is in the details, and these details include many evil people doing many evil things that are in opposition to God's law, but all of them, every action, everything is part of God's complex plan. The most evil thing that has ever been done on this earth has been the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Amen? There were many people who were directly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, but all of it was the divine plan of God. Peter preached this during the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, what we read earlier this morning. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God in His sovereignty, and then look at the next statement, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God over all things man responsible who was responsible for jesus death the romans yes the jews yes all of humanity's sins yes and to god it was god's plan of redemption but all of mankind's sinful actions and motives are responsible for such a terrible crime our motives have not been any better than the godless israelite or the power-hungry, self-worshipping Assyrian. God will judge everyone based upon what they have done and what motives they have had when they did it. The intentions of everyone's heart is corrupt apart from being born again. How is anyone born again? It's by the work of the Holy Spirit 
to bring about faith and repentance in that person's heart, mind, and life practice. This is only possible because of God's plan of redemption through the crucifixion of the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. And Jesus' crucifixion brings deliverance. It brings deliverance to the remnant that has been chosen by grace. God is going to judge His remnant people, though. And He's going to judge His remnant people based upon Christ's motives, Christ's actions, not theirs. Praise God. It's not Jesus, it it, it is Jesus' perfections, it is His righteousness that has been imputed to us. It is not of what we have done or what we could do or what we have earned or, or had flow through the bloodline down to us. It is only by Christ. It is, it is that faith that we have in Him. It is the promise that has been made to us and made to you today that if anyone would call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That is a decree from God. You will be saved. It's certain. You might be really, really close to the stained glass of your life. You're, you're so close, you can see the bubbles, you can see the streaks, you can see the cracks, you can see the discoloration that is there. And you think the world is ugly, you think everything is terrible in your situation, and I would tell you this morning to step back. Step back. Look at what God has been doing and is doing. Step back and see His plan of salvation for remnant people who have been just as terrible as the world around them. Step back and see His deliverance from a greater enemy than Assyria, or any other country that might exist today, it is your personal sin which is the greatest enemy. Stand back and stand in awe of what He is capable of doing with nations and people who believe that they are in control, who are greedy and who worship themselves. Stand back and stand in amazement at who God is because we have an amazing Savior Let me leave you with just a couple questions to consider to reflect upon this morning. First being, why is God concerned about our motives? Why is He concerned about your motives? Personally, individually, your motives. If you notice out of our texts, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria is held responsible. So there's, there's an entire nation that's going to be held responsible, an entire army that's going to be judged, an entire nation that will be judged, but a specific king that will be judged. So try not to spread your sin around to other people, but think on yourself this morning. Why is God concerned about your motives? Second question, how should the remnant people of God live? How should we live? What have we learned this morning about God's remnant people. Let me give you just a few moments to consider these things, pray about these things. If you, if you want to come and pray at the front or kneel where you're at in your, in your seat, those are all acceptable things, right things to do. If you want to pray with somebody, we encourage that as well this morning. But would you spend just a few moments in consideration of who God is and who you are? Would you pray?